0: You know, in a sense, what you can think of the UK as a little laboratory. Whatever everywhere has done wrong, the UK has probably done wrong more.
1: Uh, Welcome to this very special episode of the Better Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to Professor Richard Jones from the University of Manchester. I'm also co-hosting this with Tom Westcart. Hi, uh, Professor Jones, and hi, Tom.
0: Hi. Great to be here. Lovely to be
1: here, also. All right. Um, our first question is, what is your work all about to people who haven't read it? You know, uh, what do you what are you working on and why is that important?
0: Yeah. So, well, I should say I'm a physicist by background. I'm an experimental soft matter physicist. So my kind of real day job is actually doing work about uh, polymers and organic materials at surfaces and interfaces. So some of the things I'm working on there are about, uh, you know, how to make paints better, how to make solar cells better and cheaper. But over the years, I've got very interested in the issue of how science and society interact, particularly how, Uh, um, science and technology lead to productivity growth, how the kind of improvements in the standards of living that we've all got used to depend on science and technology, but they depend on it in quite complicated ways. And, uh, you know, for the last 20 years in particular, I've been based in the north of England And it's been very obvious that, you know, there's a big economic gap between the north of England and, you know, London, Cambridge, Oxford, the southeast. So I've got very interested in the regional dimension of this and, you know, how it is that uh, innovation spreads, how, you know, what what its geographical dimension is.
2: Excellent. And that's um, something that we're going to cover through quite a lot of the questions um, we've got. One of the reasons that your work's come to our attention recently is a brilliant series that you've written on, I guess, the state of um, British scientific R&D. There's a lot of discussion about how the UK can become a scientific superpower. That seems to be the rhetoric that is um, capturing the um, the discussion of, of, of many uh, ministers. Um And and I was wondering, could you please summarise for someone who hasn't read this new essay series? What's it about? What are the key questions that you're trying to answer? And and, and I guess, why does it matter?
0: Okay. uh, well, I guess the reason is this. So, um, So. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be proud of in the UK science base, and you, you know, uh, government ministers and uh, and leading scientists spend a lot of time celebrating, you know, the, the extent to which the UK, you know, you know, still remains by some measures a very strong scientific nation. And yet, if we then look at how does that translate into the economy, how does that translate into the state of the country, there's this bit of a gap, you know. So essentially productivity growth has uh, stopped growing in, productivity stopped growing in 2008, the global financial crisis. Productivity has basically flatlined since then. So we're not, you know, we're not working out how to use innovation in its broader sense to get more output from a given input that's what productivity means and that shows up in the fact that average wages haven't grown uh, the the fiscal state you know the, the governments are having a really hard time having to raise taxes and it's still not a- able to meet the demands that people have on public services so it's really trying to address that gulf why is it that we've got this you know in many ways very excellent strong science space and yet in terms of ordinary people's lives, in terms of uh, the overall state of the economy, you, you know, since two, thousand and eight, that's not showing up in 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 in, the, in in improvements in people's lives. You know, it's really. You know, one has to stress this slowdown in productivity is completely unprecedented in living memory. You have to go back to the 19th century to find a period where you, we've had so long where the economy has stagnated. So that was really what prompted me. Well, it's prompted you know a lot of work over um, quite a long time now. I've been thinking about these issues, about thinking, OK, what is it about the UK science system that, that is meaning that it's not really driving um, uh, improvements that, you know, people will see in their everyday lives.
2: And, yeah, you're hitting on these points, this idea of this this, this great stagnation. It's something that's um, been prevalent in many countries around the world, not just the UK. But, uh, I mean, a, a lot of scientific R&D policies, as you say, really are instrumental in dealing with our long-run productivity problems. Um, but, I mean, you don't have to... Um, go very far to any newspaper that's sort of worth its salt to see that we're stagnating right now. And so I guess almost zooming in a little bit what do you see the role of science and technology policy as, as doing in alleviating some of the more immediate short term concerns around stagnation? Is this something that we can think about as a, as a means of for example dealing with the cost of living in the next 12 to 18 months, or is that something that we have to largely leave to um, more traditional kinds of sort of um, redistribution and monetary and and fiscal policy to do with that? I guess, is there a role for science technology uh, policy and and, and R&D policy to play in dealing with these more short term concerns?
0: I think, frankly, the slightly brutal answer to that is no. I think, you know, the problems that we're seeing now are the result of decisions that were made five and ten years ago or even longer actually so i think yeah we 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 we're, we're not growing our economy's not growing as fast as we would like and it's worth kind of setting the uk in context here i mean you're quite right to say there is this phenomenon of you know the uh, the great stagnation or whatever it's it, it's absolutely right to see you know across the world we see this slowdown in productivity growth i mean the uk is interesting because the uk kind of exhibits the same as other places but even more so in fact it's only Italy that's worse than than, than, than the UK amongst um, the kind of uh, the, the, the nations that the UK would tend to compare itself against so um you know in a sense what you, you can think of the UK as a little laboratory whatever everywhere has done wrong the UK has probably done wrong more <laughs> and so um, uh, I think you know I think it re- it does reflect, you know, global, there have been some global trends in how things, pe- how people think about innovation and what people expect from it. And the UK has been the country that has probably, whatever mistakes other countries have made, the UK has made the same mistakes, only more so on a bigger scale and for longer.
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah. I
0: mean, to come back to, to, to just to come back to the original, I mean, I do think the problem is, you know, in terms of what the, the state that we have now, you know, we are not we're not getting uh, richer at the rate that we came to get used to over many decades and that kind of been the political question now is how the pain is shared uh, for the short term the medium term problem is how do we rebuild out of this and how do we get that growth going back again because i am optimistic i mean in a sense you know i kind of have a, a an intermediate position you know there are people who think the great, the great stagnation is happening there's nothing we can do about it there are people who think that, uh, that that there's no stagnation. We're just accelerating away. Everything's fine. I'm in the middle. I think the stagnation is real, but I think it happened because we did a bunch of things. And if we did things differently, we could get over it. So in that sense, I'm an optimist.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, across the last 50 years, you know, science has slowed down by almost any measure, right? It takes a lot more money to make new drugs these days. Uh, Moore's Law it takes a lot more resources. And, and in physics itself, people complain that we've eaten up all the low-hanging fruit, you know. Given that all of this has, has, has happened, right? Um, isn't it rational on the side of governments and companies to just invest less? They're seeing a lot less rewards. I'm I'm not sure what to make of this argument.
0: I think th- I think you need to be very careful to distinguish between science and technology. And I think, I mean, I think there are arguments that part bits of science are slowing down. I you know I don't disagree that you can't find places where where, where science is slowing down a little bit. I think um, you know it's quite interesting. You know, I'm I, my day job. I I, I I'm a physicist. I, I taught physics for a long time, and it's kind of quite interesting and slightly salutary to, you know, if I compare what's the what's the physics I learnt when I went to university in 1980 against what's the physics I teach now. You know, a painfully large amount of it's quite similar. It's actually different in biology, you, you know, biology, you, see, you know, it's a question that is it worth spending the money on the next edition of the textbook in, in biology? Yes, it is, because, you know, comparing even what we knew 10 years ago or 20 years ago it's uh, that, that there's that, that there's a huge amount of stuff that w- we discover and in my own little bit of physics you know there's a huge amount of really exciting work going on now about this the field is called active matter it's you know what are the basic physical principles that underlie systems that are hugely out of equilibrium essentially what's the physics of biology basically really fascinating lots of unanswered questions lots of, lots of new stuff coming out so i think the the picture. I, I mean, I I have some sympathy with the broad view that science is slowing down, but I think you need to look at the the, the whole area. I think you know the trouble is that um the 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 drug question. You know, that's a technology question. It's about it, it, it's the, the the slowness in or the slowdown. E rooms law, as it's called, the fact that it's exponentially more expensive to develop a new drug. I and mean, that's that's a technological question. And actually, you know, to, again, if I want to be more optimistic than you think, there is actually a slight sign that E-Room's laws kind of halted a little bit, that the, 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 the curve has flattened out a bit in the last few, few years. I and mean, the semiconductor story is interesting, you, you know, the, but, but uh in, in a sense that's just one technology there are many different ways in which you could do computing if you think about it in general we've got stuck on one particular uh, approach cmos we've got to the kind of end of that road really we probably need to look for something else and i suppose if you take the long view you can look at um you know this kind of exponential growth that then saturates to something that you know we we've, we've seen before in the mid 19th century steam engines you know the efficiency of steam engines was growing exponentially in the middle of the 19th century and then that kind of stopped and it, you know the reason it stopped was because it hit some physical limits kind of gets close to the carno limit uh, and then you know technology then advanced by uh, using other ways of converting energy so you know essentially we stopped using steam engines and we started using diesel diesel engines and that took us that got us a bit more so in principle the fact that cmos has run out of steam uh, and you know computers aren't getting faster is not surprising what perhaps is surprising is that we haven't got around to find you know what's the next generation of computing i mean it could be you know maybe it is quantum computing uh, and, you know, maybe that will uh, take off and catch fire. But, it's the, uh, but but I think it's a slightly different question to say, why is technology slowing to why is science slowing down?
2: And I think that distinction is quite important, particularly when you consider the second of your essay series that covers um, many themes, but one of them is commercialization. So this yeah. process of technology transfer, how do you bring something from the initial research stage to the market? And now, obviously, d- different um, university ecosystems in different countries will have a different tech transfer process. Um, But what do you think are the core reasons behind what is sometimes described as the UK's commercialization problem? I know it's become a bit of a meme in a way that UK is not great. It's great at research. It's not great at spitting things out or it's not great at um, producing commercial output at the end of it. Um, But what do you think if, if this problem does exist, what do you think is driving it? And are these problems... Um, applicable across many other parts of the world that are trying to do um, science and technology policy.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the problem is. I, I mean, the, the, this idea that the UK is bad at innovation—it's kind of—it's it, an interesting thing. I think people used to say it even when the UK was quite good at innovation. So it's, it's slightly paradoxical that I think is true now. It wasn't true. Fifty years ago, when people used to say exactly the same thing, and uh, Steer Westlake, who is a great commentator on all this, kind of makes the lovely point that if he ever goes now, even those countries you go to Singapore or you go to Israel or you go to Korea, and people say exactly the same thing everywhere, thinks they're bad at innovation. So it's kind of a slightly general thing. I think the problem. I do think that there is something broken about the model of expecting everything to come from universities, everything to come as IP-based spin-outs and then to be scaled up. I think that is the difficulty. I think it's worked in some circumstances, but I think, um, you know, I'm probably, um, you know, if you go back to why some, you know, technologies went very fast in the 50s and 60s, I do think you have to go back to the role of the state. And um, if, you know, integrated circuits are a a great example. I mean, so transistors were invented in Bell Labs. Bell Labs is a very interesting institution in itself because it was a private sector institution, but it had a very wide and very large-scale science Activity that went really quite close. Well, you know, they produced loads of Nobel prizes, so they were doing proper fundamental science. And you know, the reason for that was that although it was a private sector organisation, it's kind of it had this sort of deal. It had essentially a monopoly, so so it had. The, the, the company had these monopoly rents. And if you like, the kind of spoken or unspoken social contract there was that with these monopoly rents, it would do this wide ranging science. And, you know, transistors were invented there, and uh, and Bell Labs was not permitted to, uh, or, or, or it was not permitted to exert a monopoly on the use of transistors. So, so the, the, the patents were licensed to many other co- companies. Um then, you know, what made integrated circuits? What 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 drove the development of integrated circuits? Well, it was huge US military markets. So um, the first um, you know, the first computers that used integrated circuits rather than individual transistors uh, were the guidance systems for Minuteman missiles. So that kind of that sense of huge Cold War priority that that was driving those technologies. Yes, all those technologies were developed in the private sector. They were developed by companies in Silicon Valley. That was the start of Silicon Valley. But the reason they could do that was that they had this huge market and this this government absolutely existentially needing this new technology. You know, people talk about the moonshot you have to remember the real moonshot of the fifties and sixties was not putting men on the moon it was being able to drop half a ton of payload anywhere on the earth's surface that's what you know that's what the icbm program was so that created this market but you know the first mass produced integrated circuits and uh, then, uh, then people uh, that there is some doubt about uh, you know what the f- the first microprocessor that was. Uh, some people say it was the flight control computer for, for the Tomcat, uh, but not, you know nonetheless that was that 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 was this the way that worked was this combination of the private sector delivering the public sector really driving innovation really hard because it was absolutely existentially concerned with the survival of the state. So that was, you know, that was the Cold War that we lived in. The Cold War stopped. Um, uh, Many countries, you know, ran down their kind of military research. Uh, Simultaneously, all that kind of... You know those kind of big corporates where you had this sense of there was a whole you know pr- that there were guaranteed profits that weren't particularly uh, um uh, the, the there wasn't this drive you know this drive for shareholder uh rewards uh that 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 world went away uh, companies stopped doing long-range research you know bell labs uh, after the bell monopoly was broken up bell labs itself was broken up uh, and that sense that private sector companies could do quite long- range research uh, went away and I think you know we're in a very different environment now and I talk about it uh, you know the, the way I put it in, in in my blog post was this division of labor has become much more extreme In the olden days, sorry, olden days, you know, I'm talking 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, you would have very academic, you know, scientists who had very kind of basic uh, drivers working for companies. And that way, you've got much more mixture, I think, between what does the market demand, what, and, you know, what can technology provide?
2: And... And on this point, I, th- I think this will lead into some, of the, um, some interesting follow-ups here, but um, I'm curious to see, you make some really interesting points there around perhaps us having these outdated mental models of this commercial process, particularly in, in a lot of software-driven um, Sort of uh, spin outs or software driven industries as well this idea that the IP can be like owned by the university and it, 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 and the technology transfer officers are these owners of these little slices of IP a lot of the people that I've spoken to seem to find that quite a a sort of an archaic uh, a, a approach and, and and the point you make about um, you know the, the sort of government, almost not necessarily buyer is first resort, but I'm curious to get your thoughts around the role of the procurement industry in this too. And so you've mentioned military contractors and you've mentioned these big labs. Um, Do you sort of subscribe to the view that the current procurement model that we have uh, with respect to actually ensuring that there's a significant commercial output at the end of it? Do you you subscribe to the view that that's broken? Uh, And if so, What do you think could be done um, from sort of um, government purchasing perspective to demonstrate that big leap of faith to actually, um, you know, to actually produce the the frontier shifting technologies of tomorrow?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting and difficult question, because in a sense, uh, procurement, the UK state has been very good at driving short term value. And uh, uh, and arguably, I would say it's been very good at, you know, it's been penny wise, pound foolish because it's driven short term value at the cost of long term growth. And, uh, um, you know, so the NHS is, you know, it's a it's a massive organisation and it's, um, you know, in principle, the NHS should be a huge driver of health um, uh, uh, of health technologies But it isn't really, Uh, you know, most people agree that the NHS is actually a terrible organisation to sell innovative technologies into. Uh, It's partly actually structural because of the the way that it's been organised, particularly, you know, it's been reorganised, so it's a very, very complicated and Byzantine structure where nobody quite knows who's responsible for what but also you know just bluntly they're really short of cash what they need to do is get absolutely the cheapest outcome for uh, at all points so it's kind of interesting you know the nhs is a brutally efficient healthcare system the united states has a astonishingly inefficient healthcare system you know it's massively expensive but actually you know perversely the united states healthcare system is a much better driver of uh, of technology partly because it's you know in a sense somehow there seems to be much more money floating around and uh, for complicated reasons about um, how, um, uh, you know, how how drugs are priced and such like, you know, if it wasn't for the US market, probably nobody would ever uh, develop a new drug hour.
1: You know, my question on, on that is basically from these two examples what i see is that the best way to lead to have high innovation would be um, something like have a large market with a very willing buyer and you more or less in, uh, incentivize people to work on it is that your model of this too
0: that's part of the model i do think you need to think a bit about organization you know i i think you need organizations that can can, can do things i think um, you know, and you get this, I mean, there's a, there's this balance that I think is quite hard to strike between, you know, the kind of startup mentality of, you know, people are absolutely throwing their heart and soul into things and, you know, really working, you know, without kind of bureaucratic barriers that gets you quite a long way. But on the other hand, very big technologies need Organizations and bureaucracies. You know, you're not going to build a passenger airplane in a startup just because the kind of complexity of knitting together all those requirements or or, all the regulatory requirements, all those sorts of things mean that you need you need you know you need structure. And so, I mean, I suppose you know the great kind of um, cautionary story here is Theranos, as it were, as a company. You know, actually, you go back to Ferros at the beginning and think, actually, you know, I was thinking about those things at the time when, you know, when I was thinking about nanotechnology a lot more, you know, some of the original promises that were kind of, you know, these are really cool ideas. It would have been really great if somebody had got them to work. But ultimately, you just needed a more structured environment than that kind of Silicon Valley startup, actually, to deliver a technology that is very complicated, that is, you know, that that lives depend on getting it right. Uh, 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 So so I think, you know, it's a really difficult thing to to get that balance between the kind of enthusiasm and drive and uh, uh, and ability to do things differently that you get in startup culture and the structure and formality that you need to deliver, you know, something that if you screw it up, it's going to kill loads of people. Getting that right, I think, is is really interesting. You know, you know, the kind of great interesting story now is nuclear. Nuclear power is a kind of interesting story because nuclear power, absolutely, there has been pretty much no innovation for the last 50 years. And it's um I mean 50 years, I'm probably doing 50 years actually. And you know, at a time when you know, I, as you know, I believe that nuclear technology, for all for all its nuclear energies, for all it has many flaws. Actually, you know, we really badly need it to to combat climate change. We're not going to get to, uh, climate change; isn't going to be solved entirely with renewables. Marvelous, there they are. And, uh, but you know, that, that that's an example. You know, would you want you, you don't want a startup to, to build you a nuclear power station because you know lots of it is just plumbing but if you fuck it up it's sorry if you screw it sorry. <laughs> no problem
1: it's
0: it, it, it's it's going to be a disaster so that's the that that, that, that that's the that that's the, the, the thing that you have to do mm-hmm. um, you know frankly the same is true about semiconductors i mean I, I don't know if you've ever seen a semiconductor fab i mean they're absolute cathedrals to, to the modern world i mean mm-hmm. huge massive amounts of really complicated capital equipment all glued together very complicated processes again you know absolutely dependent on getting it totally right you know the 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 one fault screws up entire production runs and so it's how do you balance that structure the, the the need for structure to do complicated difficult uh things that lives depend on against the need to move fast do new things try things differently
1: let's say, uh, let's say somebody gave you a billion pounds, okay, let's say the, the, and and, and they said, you know, Dr. Jones, here's a billion pounds, and we want you to do whatever you you want with this to accelerate the uh, rate of scientific progress in Britain by as much as possible. Uh, What would you do?
0: I would choose something that you want, I I would choose something to deliver. And I think, um, you know, I do believe technology and science are closely linked for all that i was saying we need to distinguish between them i think uh i think good science is driven by the needs of technology i think uh you know one hears a lot about mission driven uh, uh you know we should be mission driven i kind of agree with that but i think a mission actually is delivering something substantial, some kind of product. So uh, for a billion pounds, I would think, what could I build for a billion pounds? Actually, it's not very much. billion pounds is not actually a lot of money in this context. Uh, You know, actually, it's why, I I mean, I kind of, one of the things I do think the UK is doing quite well at the moment is fusion. And I say that despite the fact I'm not actually convinced that it's going to work. You know, I'm not sure I would bet my entire um, uh, pension on fusion uh, uh, you know fusion power delivering so it, it's one of those things it may or may not work it's really worth trying and the discipline of actually saying okay by 2035 i want you to make a plant that is going to be you know delivering 100 megawatts of energy or even 20 megawatts of energy continuously that is a great challenge. Actually, a billion pounds, probably not enough to do it. But I mean, if you do that, then you'll get a whole bunch of, uh, of you know, a whole bunch of problems then arise and you have to solve those problems. And in solving those problems, you will unlock other possibilities. So I, I, I do think, uh, you know, as I say, if you want me to look at something that I think the UK has done that, that is the right thing to do, even though it may not work, it is the fusion programme. I think it's a, it, it's a good thing. And
2: one of the central aspects of your writing in this essay series covered the challenges of regional disparities. And you've done yeah. some previous work on this with Tom Forth and, and various other things too. Um, and the levelling up agenda for people that aren't based in basically the UK has become... The real flagship policy, or, or policy, quote-unquote, in the um, eyes of the UK government has driven a lot of the last four or five years of um, political economy in this country, and it's really getting a lot of scrutiny now. People are saying it's not delivered, and um, some of the levelling up missions cover um, R&D, um, albeit in perhaps not a very uh, ambitious way. Uh, and, and you cover it in a little bit more um, detail here. And um, just a quick question here, um, and this might lead into some other questions around the role of regional disparities in innovation. What should be more of a priority? Cluster building around an area such as Sunderland or improving the Oxford Cambridge arc? Now, what, I guess this, this question here is trying to get at the fact that are we, are we here trying to build the next big thing? the thing that's gonna be this frontier-shifting, game-changing innovation that will then have this this broader distributional impact on the rest of the country? Um, Or do we wanna um, develop a more resilient, a a, a broader, more diverse portfolio of of industries and have these clusters that start to build um, beyond just London and the Southeast?
0: Yeah, I I think, the, the, the let me say something more about levelling up maybe for some of your non uk listeners i mean uh, so the uk is a very regionally unequal country so the 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 the, 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 the um, london and the southeast pretty much uh same kind of economic level as you, you know most of northern europe but actually Wales, the north of England, the Midlands, North Ireland basically look like southern Italy or Portugal so the, 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 in, in terms of productivity the differences are huge. The differences are um, large by international comparisons but these are problems that are, you, you know are actually not unique to the UK and you know in the USA, You know, you could say the same things about uh, 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 where research money is concentrated or, you know, prosperity in the USA and and, and where R&D money is concentrated. So in the USA, you know, by the time you take out California, uh, Boston, down the East Coast and a bit in Chicago, um, you know, huge amounts of the USA have very little, uh, you know, much lower degrees of... um, uh, uh, of r and d and innovation, and you know i I read in science magazine that, as the kind of current r and d spending bill is going through uh, congress uh, you know there 's a big fight about how much of that to earmark to you know what actually is leveling up, so you know you talk about. You know, the, the USA has, you know, so-called rust belt cities where, uh, you know, industries have uh, been and gone. And I don't know, uh, you can uh that you know plenty of midwestern cities are doing you know pretty badly uh, and so the, the, there's that comparison uh you know frankly if you probably you know you look at china you probably say the same thing that you know, the, the, the difference between coastal china and the western parts of china is is very large uh, so um in, in the UK context is because the UK has a particularly low R&D intensity anyway. So the UK ought to just do more R&D. Uh, uh, so, so the the, uh, the, the question in the UK is we need to do more R&D. Where should we do it? I think... Um, uh, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and the, the, the surrounding regions are great successes. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in Cambridge uh, and I, I, it's, um, it, it's a fantastic asset for the country. So nothing that one ought to do in levelling up ought to be about making the situation in Oxford or Cambridge or, uh, uh, worse than it currently is. Some of the problems that Oxford and Cambridge have are that they can't grow. And, you know, the Oxford Cambridge Arc was an attempt to address that by saying, can we kind of improve the infrastructure? Can we improve the planning basically so people can afford to live there? Because, you know, that's the issue. Uh, uh, and, I, you know, I, I actually regret that the fact that the Oxford Cambridge Arc seems to have got downgraded by the government. I think it just, you know, it's a bit of political cowardice, really, not to say, you know, I, I, I it you know in a sense we've we've got these fantastic centers of innovation we're not making the most of them because people can't afford to live there there are all kinds of barriers to growth people can't build new businesses there just because um that um you know people can't get around people can't you know it's just they don't work severe as planning civil. restrictions yeah exactly exactly so you know given that um there is not you know there are places that need to grow and probably are more willing to grow than Oxford and Cambridge and since you know Manchester University employs me I need to say Manchester is exactly such a city. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that it has a, a you know manchester's got a great university in it it's got a quite a thriving startup culture that they're, that they're, they're, and you know it's got um space to grow and people can afford to live there so uh in a sense leveling up if you did it right would be both improving the growth prospects of places like manchester and sheffield and leeds but also Maybe you know if you did it right, you might even make life less miserable in Oxford and Cambridge.
2: But yeah. just just jumping in there, um, I mean, so I, I'm not I'm not trying to say that's a politician's answer in terms of saying let's have let's have both. But obviously, we know the knotty world of policymaking often requires making trade-offs and uh, you know, choosing make choosing one thing over the other. And so, I mean i'm i share your optimism there but i sometimes wonder if we had to choose are we going to sort of build up our regional clusters into something i'm trying to think of a uh, sort of something that would be akin to if you think about places like france and germany where they do have these regions that are known for they'll have like manufacturing industry and they'll have like like the Fraunhofer Institute based around there and it's not necessarily the, the new Silicon Valleys that are producing all this stuff but it's 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 well-paid like professional and middle managerial sort of middle-class jobs um, it's not necessarily producing like the next big thing but I, I I guess I guess you know if you had to choose if, if there was you know if, if you said you know it's gonna it's gonna be like turn Man- turn Manchester into this like really interesting um, cluster that specialises, um, but isn't quite producing I don't know next generation of quantum computers, um, or put your eggs in the basket of like Oxford and Cambridge because we need to like get to AGI before China or and 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 basically just going for hell for leather in 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 sort of all the institutes around there is absolutely crucial do you have in your mind what would be if you had to pick one what it would be
0: well i i think the, the, the issue is that we made this choice already actually so what ha- so the history of british science policy is the history of concentration so you know in the 80s as public science budgets were rapidly you know really dialed back so so, so the uk reduced its public spending on science. Uh, really substantially from in, in, in the 80s. And essentially what people said was exactly that. They said, oh, we need to hold on. You know, we can't spread all the money around. We've got to hold on to a few places that are going to be, you know, that, that will be kind of competitive. It was pretty much, OK, who are we going to put in the lifeboat? And Oxford and Cambridge got shoved in the lifeboat and Sheffield and Manchester got thrown out. Not quite. I mean, that's slightly exaggerating. So, So we made that choice. The situation we're now in is actually, I think, in a sense, it's quite healthy because we've realized that that choice was wrong. So, you know, there's a complete consensus that the UK needs to spend more money on R&D. And so, you know, currently R&D spending is 1.7 percent of GDP. The current government wants it to go to 2.4%, you know, the opposition would like like it to go to 3%. Nobody thinks it's right. So everybody thinks that R&D spending ought to increase. And, you know, what's in the current plans is an increase of about, you know, about a third. So currently R&D spending, public R&D spending is about 15 billion and the government's committed to go to make it 20 billion. So for the first time for about 20 or 30 years, we can say actually we don't have to make that choice. We can, we can take money and put it in other places outside the Golden Triangle without taking money away from those existing centers of excellence. Now, back to the kind of the kind of other question about what kind of economy do you want? The point that I think, you know, I, I've learned from economic geographers: what's wrong with the UK economy is that it has big second cities that don't perform. So in every normal country, the bigger the city, the, the, more economically, the more economically productive it is. Because, you know, what economists call agglomeration effects. People, you know, you have more complex economies. People bump into each other. More innovation happens. That is what doesn't happen in the UK. So in the UK, you have this very big capital city that is very economically productive. Then you actually have a bunch of quite small cities that are pretty productive too, but they're kind of, you know, you're talking about Milton Keynes, um, Slough, Swindon. And then you have the, the big second cities are just are completely underperforming. So the question to ask is not why is, you know, it's not why is Manchester not Silicon Valley or why is Manchester, you know, not, not uh, Palo Alto? It's why is Manchester not Munich? Because actually that's the comparison. You know, Munich's an enormously prosperous second city. Um, Hugely, you know, it, it... you know, great scientific strength. So, you know, it's got two world-class universities, LMU and TU Munich are kind of great, great universities, fantastic uh, science and uh, fantastic innovation. And then it's got these industries that just, oh, you know, they make cars. They kind of, well, cars at the moment are pretty much bits of electronics on wheels, aren't they? Uh, and you know, if if Manchester was as productive as Munich, it'd probably be worth uh, 30, 40 billion to, to to UK GDP. So uh, that that that's that's the problem. So so I, I, I in a sense, my answer to you is not oh, we need to make you know, we need to spread R&D everywhere. It's just, we need to spread R&D into a few more places than it's currently spread. And we need to make sure that our big cities are doing what big cities ought to do of being hives of innovation, people talking to each other, lots of different businesses springing up and down. Look, the, these kinds of networks of suppliers coming coming in where everybody's driving each other to innovate further. So that's, that, 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 that's how I'd answer your question. And I don't think frankly, you know, uh, um, you know if you want to worry about the next big thing is it going to come out of oxford or cambridge i don't know
1: um i mean the job. <laughs> yeah no one of the main arguments for r&d is that it's a public good right if i make it in london or i'm making northumberland or i make it in chennai or make it in saudi arabia the benefits yeah. of it go to everyone right yeah. and you know doesn't that make um a lot of the geographic location is relevant. It's okay, you know, if you if you make the uh, if you if you make the new research center in Scotland or in London, what matters in the long run is going to be more of the uh, research from the research center, not the place of the research center itself. So I'm not fully convinced by the leveling up argument. I do agree that it is, it is good to have, um, you know, more uh, places more places where we have large universities, but that seems to be the wrong type of, uh, uh, but, I mean, the argument that uh, having uh, spending money on uh, research in one place by itself is going to increase economic growth doesn't seem to be the uh, right one for me.
0: Well, I, I guess the counter argument is, look, is everywhere in the world as rich as everywhere else? No the answer is not so if scientific knowledge was all that mattered and scientific knowledge could travel everywhere everywhere would be as rich as everywhere else it's not clearly you know we've got rich countries and we've got poor countries it's conventional to think about this in terms of nation states so we think about you know how does the, the uk compared with with uh, italy or with germany or with korea uh, but um, I, I i you know I think as soon as you accept the argument that knowledge doesn't seamlessly flow everywhere you have to ask well what's different about uh, you know if i if i accept that it's natural portugal is less prosperous than the uk why can't i accept that there's some reason why uh, london is more prosperous than, uh, than 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 leeds and i think it comes down to Uh, you know i'm not necessarily i should say you know this is not me saying i think this is all about universities because i don't think it is i think it's about the networks of people and knowledge that make technologies really happen and so i think the problem is that lots you know you know why is it that only one why is it why is it that it's only in Sinshu in Taiwan that that one can make the most that the the, the the best integrated circuits? Why is TSMC the the only company that you know the company that seems to be doing better than well it's doing better than Intel and Samsung? But there's only three companies in the entire world that can do it anyway. It's all you know. It's it's what's in people's heads. It's it's that know-how. You know, it's a complicated network of we know what bits of kit to buy, how to put those bits of kit together, what you need to do to all the kind of subtle tweaks that make a process work. So, I think the key thing is that technology comes from people's know how and the interaction of people's know how, and that has a geographic component. It has, you know, I suppose the simplest thing way to put it is. You know, if people ask me, "Oh, what defines a cluster?" Well, actually, what really defines a cluster is it's a bunch of places where somebody, you know, an engineer can um, an engineer can change jobs, and they don't have to change where their children go to school. And it's like uh, it, it, it's so, so all those mechanisms by which knowledge is transferred. In the real world of technology, as opposed to kind of my high-flown world of academia, where I kind of write papers all the time, but when it comes to actually making technologies, it's about different kinds of relationships. It's about relationships between people buying things off each other. So, you know, it's about... The relationship that tsmc has has with its suppliers of uh, you know the kit it uses the chemicals it uses but it's just about you know those operators the people who understand how plants work that's you know it's, it's those relationships that make technologies happen and those are local because people um live in places and they travel to work and they talk to people um, you know that's how it is so i mean there is some evidence for this i mean there's some genuine evidence in terms of what the length scale if you like of uh, uh, of spillovers as economists call it and you know i i i don't see that there's any reason to, you know my 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 instinct is that those length scales are set by how much people you know how much people move basically
2: so these these questions of agglomeration of economic spillovers, I think they quite nicely sort of speak to questions of, of new institutions too. And one of I think the most fascinating developments, certainly in the last eighteen or so months that I've seen, is the advent of these new private R and D institutions that are largely being set up by wealthy tech entrepreneurs, primarily out of a motivation to circumvent the challenges that traditional public institutions uh, have either created or, or, or have come across just, just through the, the environment that they found themselves in. And um, For example, um, something that Tyler Cowen's done with the Fast Grants Initiative, that's been set up to try and um, reduce the amount of time researchers spend filling out long grant applications. I think the stat that they used from their research was 25% of time that researchers spend is often filling out applications. So you're, you're incentivizing being good at um, uh, sort of answering uh, the exam question just as well as, as much as you are actually doing the, the research. Um, so, I mean, I guess my question is, what do you make of these new private R&D institutions? I'm thinking places like the Ark Institute, um, Alto's Labs, OpenAI. Um, and, and do you think that this development will become a significant theme in the UK? It seems like Britain has a lot of these sclerotic institutional characteristics in the same way that the states might have, uh, but there isn't the same market. There's not the same like set of rich tech bros with a load of money and to, to, um, with this sort of mission oriented mindset to, to throw, throw money at the problem to make their own institutions. So yeah, I mean, what do you make of this new development and, and how do you see it playing out in the UK? I,
0: I think, you know, I think it's, it's really encouraging because I think, you know, innovation, you need to innovate and now you innovate as well as innovating if you see what i mean and so i think it's really good to try different things i think um i I mean you'll have to wait for my next installment to to to, to get my sense of what i think about the various funding institutions and how they work and what makes a good funding institution or what makes a bad one i think it depends you know on the purpose i think you know a focused purpose is really important um and you know, then the question comes: Okay, how do you choose that purpose? How do you choose the goal that you want to to, to go for? Uh, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it. I mean, the, the problem is the one that as far as the uk is concerned the problem is the one that you identify already which is the uk has in general a much worse tradition of philanthropy than the usa does so you know, just in general and you can see that just in a state of you know universities in the us are funded at much greater levels than the uk ones because they have this very considerable history of private philanthropy which allows them to, to, to do things so i think that that that's a bit of an issue i think uh, so, so the kind of sums of money that one might find available you know it's it's going to be um, it's going to be tricky to imagine those things coming i think i, I mean what's interesting it, it, it's about the kind of you know to do research you need an infrastructure you know if i mean if it's anything other than software if you want to do you know what people call deep tech now if you want you know if you wanted to make a new quantum computer if you want to make a new kind of targeted therapy you know if you wanted to actually do what theranos said they wanted to do right at the beginning which is as i say it's kind of i come back to it because it's actually quite a cool piece of a a cool idea and it wasn't a stupid thing to try and do but to do it you you know you need an infrastructure you need um and you know infrastructures cost money and they have a kind of certain longevity longevity, you know i'm going to sound like a kind of hard-bitten university administrator here now but you know just how much it costs to run an animal house or to kind of have a chemistry lab where you've got all the the the, the fume cupboards working so they don't kill everybody who passes by You, you know these are kind of big hard infrastructures so somehow what you need to do is to get a way of having a hard infrastructure that's lasting and combine that with the flexibility of this kind of mission-oriented funding. And I think that's the kind of trick that we haven't really quite worked out how to do. And that that, that would be what I think you'd need to do to get this to work. So, you know, you have to imagine, I mean, maybe it is, you need a kind of open national lab type thing that has that, that, has that, that that space, and then, you know, you can fund, you can get together teams to do very focused things with a minimum of bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean that that that's sort of what one might want to try and get. Still leads the question though about how do you choose what to do? That's actually you know a big question as well, because in a sense that's what the, the science bureaucracy, you know, filling in a a, a form. Partly, it's about saying, or oh, you know, what, what's my milestones? What's my work plan? You know, but part of it is just about selling. Why is my idea the right idea? You know, what? what, what why is this thing that I want to do worth anybody else funding? And it's you know, it's not you know getting ideas actually getting cool ideas there are not that many people in the world with really cool original ideas unfortunately well there are probably a lot more people in the world with cool original ideas to ever get the chance to express them and i suppose that's what we're talking about how you kind of find those people match them up with the resources
1: so what are you telling me is all I got to do is to convince the UK to have a few more tech billionaires and convince them to put their money into funding science and 30 years later, you'll be as rich as the US? I mean, I'm only slightly exaggerating here.
0: Well, no, I don't, because I don't think the reason the US is is rich is because it's got lots of tech billionaires. I think it's got lots of tech billionaires because it's rich. I think the causality is the other way around. Hmm.
1: Okay, that's for the next podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'd, lo- I'd, I'd love to call you back and then ask about a lot more questions here, but we're running out of time. And it's almost midnight here. So um, thanks a lot for coming.
0: Right, good. Well, I I, I, I should look forward to writing the next installments where I would desperately try and work out what the actual answers are without much confidence that I know.
1: <laughs> thanks
0: very much. You know, you know, it's a fascinating conversation. And as to say, I really don't, if I knew what the answer was, perhaps I'd be a tech billionaire but I don't.
2: Watch this space.
0: Right. All right. Yeah. Right.
1: Uh, thank you so much for coming. It should come out in a few weeks now.
0: Great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Richard. It's been really, really good talking to you.